And here we are. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to RPG R&D. Uh, today, we have a... We're... Gosh, I just lost my entire train of thought. Hi, my name is Jess Geyer. I, I am one of the hosts of this show. I have done this several times. Double you wouldn't know it. You wouldn't know it, but I have. And I have my co-host here, Craig Campbell. Say Hello. hi, Craig. Hello. And today, our special guest co-host, Brandon Gutowski. Uh, Brandon, go ahead and introduce yourself and tell us about you. Hey, I'm uh, Brandon Gutowski. I've been developing RPGs, I think, for about two and a half years now. Nothing published yet. Planning on a Kickstarter very soon. Uh, life's been a little derailed at the moment because I am moving to Japan. Uh, so that is a rather big thing, taking a lot of the time out of, uh, out of my schedule. Yeah, that's a yeah. big, big move to do. So congratulations and, and good luck with all of that. Yeah, thank you. Uh, and, and, and I fixed your name. <laughs> on the screen, because I had your last name misspelled, so. Oops. <laughs> we are the masters of pre-production. We this are so <laughs> on top of things. No, no, yeah. just fix it in post. Yeah, sure. Okay. Uh, Craig, do you want to explain what RPG R&D is? <laughs> sure. Um, we're going to talk about three things that kind of revolve mostly around um, RPGs, which is... Uh, First topic is always a GMing topic, then we do a little discussion about something having to do with RPG design. Um, people on the show, Jess and I are both um, designers, and we've had uh, designers and people, other people in adjacent spaces um, who've been guests on the show, um, like Brandon. And then uh, we've got our potpourri topic, which is like, you know, whatever it is we feel like talking about that's kind of geekery and nerdery adjacent. Um, so I think the... Uh, the GMing thing. Oh, let's do this. Um, oh, we, we good Lord, I'm terrible at this too. Brandon already introduced himself. We don't need to do that again. Yeah, <laughs> we're both um, flustered right now for whatever reason. <laughs> oh, my whole life. Is I have summer brain. That's my excuse. Congratulations. <laughs> <laughs> um, but we're gonna talk uh, from a GMing standpoint, engaging all the players um, and by extension all the characters equally at the table or as you know near to equal as possible um, so who wants to get that started like the, there is a tendency sometimes some players um, have uh, you know kind of take can t take over the table um, some GMs you know inadvertently might um, favor particular characters or players um, just because they're intrigued by that character or the background or you know Hopefully, maybe they, you know, maybe they just know that player better. There's a lot of different ways that you can kind of get a lack of equity um, at the table where some people kind of fade into the background, when, and that's not really great. We want to try to avoid that. So, thoughts? Anybody? Who wants to go? Um, I guess since... Uh, yeah, I've got, I've got some thoughts on this, because this is something I've been learning, I guess, as I've GM'd more and more, uh, as I moved from, like... Uh, D&D, then to added some Dread, Savage Worlds, started doing other people's systems for one-shots as well, then doing my own. I, I always wondered what it was like to make sure everyone was engaged the same. And it wasn't necessarily dealing with um, attention hogs necessarily, my first thought. It was more just, this is your character archetype, and this is what you wanted to do as a player based on how you built. And I want to make sure that there's enough going on in a scene, uh, like mechanically, that they, everyone wanted to 
felt like they had something important to contribute. Uh, so that's something I've been practicing with, and I guess to bring up an example of something I was pretty happy with that got done. Um, like my players found a, they're placed on a marooned on a derelict ship, and they've just finished exploring through a, a, uh, the ship and get to a hangar, and they find a mostly intact ship inside this like larger ship uh, that they could probably escape with. So um, I think one of the things I had done with, like learned with designs is, is always have some other problem, in this case, fixing the ship, opening the door, exploring other areas, while then throwing monsters at them to kind of slow it down. And it was just giving all three of the players something different to do. And that's sort of where I wanted to start talking about and just what other things you've done outside of combat as a problem, like other, other things that, that engage players and threaten them while they get to like, be like, this is my archetype that I want to do. And I'm, I'm going to feel really cool in this, even though I'm not, I'm not the barbarian that's fighting all the things in front of me. I'm this tech guy that's going to repair the ship. Uh, and that's sort of maybe a, a bit of a player empowerment type thing. Yeah, I think that you're 100% right with that. Most of the times I've had issues with sharing the spotlight at my tables isn't because one person wants the entire spotlight. It's because not everyone is getting the opportunity to go there. They don't have their solo parts um, at that moment. Um, and especially in games where, where it's so combat heavy. So of course the people who are up in the front of the battles, your barbarian types, your 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 fighter types, they're going to be doing a lot of that heavy lifting where you might have somebody who, you know, I'm just talking strictly D&D here at this point now. I have played bards <laughs> before where I didn't have a lot of combat skills. All of my skills were in being sneaky and, and charming people and all of those kinds of environment controlling um, aspects uh, and social control aspects. Um, but it didn't make me feel super left out because I knew when we were done with this, I would get the chance to go ahead and sing the song about our latest adventure with, uh, with the rest of my group. So even if it's not in that moment, um, like you, not everyone has to share the spotlight 100% of the time, everybody there. Um, but making sure that at some point you shift the, you shift it to another tact. Um, you have fighting in one point and you have a player who's not either either not into fighting or their character's not good at it, make sure that they get something to do, even if it's not necessarily at the same time. But it sounds like what you did, Brandon, uh, allowed all of them to have that kind of at the same time during that fight, which is also helpful. Yeah, that's, the, that is what you brought up. Those also like the other aspect that I think is really interesting. I really like making stories for each of the characters like character growth a lot i like something that that they all can kind of contribute to the world in systems where a lot of my players are a little more mechanical uh so uh they they do care more about the mechanics but i like to make it so they have impacts world building because they don't always step up to do it unless um they feel they've got the good the space to do it yeah. and that involves, yeah, sometimes different sessions are going to be more about other other people. It's like, oh, well, here comes some magic-heavy stuff because you made a warlock, and this is something that you're interested in because it's magic relating to demons. Or in, uh, yeah, going back to sci-fi stuff, I've got 
I've got somebody who is trying to understand the, the universe and the magical as or magical or unknown aspect of the universe. And then others are like, uh, I've got a Pokemon trainer, essentially. <laughs> His character's name is uh, Cash Fetchum. Oh yes. Okay. <laughs> so he he buys all of the all of the grenades, all of the tools and equipment, and being prepared is sort of his shtick. Uh, and then the other one's sort of fixing the, the the ship and repairing it. So giving moments for when you're using the ship, moments for when you're using this otherworldly force in the in the universe, and then having somebody who's like these tools are always coming in handy. And I think. He's been the easiest to engage, actually, the Pokemon trainer. But the other two people, uh, it's like taking turns on when, like, okay, now it's this your time. Now it's your time. And a lot of times, I find that my players are good with that. Like, it's you don't always need to be on. Yeah, I think um, one of the things that I've I've actually done this occasionally in the past. Usually, if if I have more than just like three or four players, for me personally, if I have three or four players, I can usually kind of keep track of all of it. But if you've got mm -hmm. more players is I'll literally, like on an index card or on the upper right corner of, you know, the, the legal pad or whatever it is I'm using, is write down every, every character's name and put a few check boxes, like empty check boxes after them. And as you're running the, the session, like when you have the moment that really engages this particular character, check box, you know, check that one, check for that character. And like if you get halfway through the session and you've got like somebody that doesn't have any check boxes or has like you know significantly less than everybody else you know maybe find a way to to steer back um to make sure that that person gets uh, you know a spotlight moment um it's it's really yeah, like rudimentary but you know it, it has helped because i mean especially if people if for anybody who's visually oriented it can, you can it's very easy to get caught up in the moment and get into the narrative and describing things and the other you've got players who are um, who are very into it and they're 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 describing things. Um, and if you've got a you know a player or two who are more reserved um, and who are also potentially playing characters that have kind of niche interests um, and kind of folk you know foci that their character is kind of going after, it's easy for them to kind of get forgotten. Um, so like li literally like a, ch a check mark like you know a, yeah. a, a set of check boxes that's like okay who has been served this person this person this person um from a planning point of view um I, i've i've done kind of a similar thing with it's not literally check boxes but like bullet list of like for any for any given player sometimes it's a player thing and sometimes it will be based on the character is having a very good sense as a GM, knowing what the player, each individual player likes. Not what the group likes, but what each individual player likes. If you have a player that loves to kick ass, you know, make sure to give them an opportunity to kick ass once a session. If you've got a player who wants to just be suave and charming and super cool, um, you know, give them a moment where they can do that. And then you know, somebody that likes to solve puzzles or figure out, like, the mystery, um, give them that. And you can find ways to combine those things. Like, Brandon was talking about that to an extent where, you know, like, just explore different uh, different ways of, you know, the, the easy one to fall back on is combat, right? Because, you know, like, you know, like everybody gets involved <laughs> in the combat, but some characters aren't necessarily as combat-oriented, and the players aren't as interested in that. Um, but you can always incorporate things like, oh, there's a trap that, you know, the, 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 the sneaky trap Springer character needs to deal with, 
Um, otherwise, it's going to uh, you know, complicate the combat. Or if the characters are in a position where they're kind of trapped, they need to get out of where they're at before the hordes rush in on top of them. Like the, the puzzle solver will help, will work to figure out how to make sure that they can get out of here before things really go dire. Um, so, and and uh, for games that allow it, and I've specifically made efforts to design games that do this, is, um, or, or you can house rule games to do this as well. There's nothing to say that you can't, that, you know, it doesn't have to always be hit points that defeats the monster. You can, the, the characters that taunt the, the monster, that distract them, that, you know, that um, trick them in some way, you can, you can assign point values to those things and let people roll dice for that too and let that be part of what, uh, you know, ultimately ends the threat of the monster. And if somebody that's swinging a sword deals the final set of points, then, okay, the monster gets killed or knocked unconscious or whatever, but if somebody who, you know, um, tried to intimidate the monster is got the, got the final few points, then the monster runs away because the monster's like, oh, I'm horribly hurt and this person is really scary and they said they're going to kill me or whatever. You know, you can, you can combine those things so that uh, characters who aren't necessarily just damage producers can get more involved. I really like that idea. That's I had not heard that before. Good Strong Hand specifically does that. Like every okay, challenge okay, is cool. built on the idea that you're just making checks that are going to check off a number of, of check boxes. Like there's a number of successes that you need in order to overcome a given challenge. And it might be one or two. It might be six or eight or ten if it's a big, big challenge. Um, and I'll literally, you know, you'll literally have characters that are doing like social roles and you know, making um, mind-based checks to try to figure out what the weakness, you know, what the creature's weakness is, and then calling that out to somebody, and then that person exploits it, and they, you know, mm-hmm. those so, types of things. So, Craig, you, you've got capers, and since people are running a heist in that, I wondered, do you have, like, a planning that happens before the heist, or is it all done during, or, like, now, or like flashbacks, like Blades in the Dark, how do you do the planning parts of your heist? And like, is that a moment where everybody gets to engage? Because that's what I found for heist type things. Everybody engages on heists planning because they're like, well, I could do this, or I could do this, or let's go with this plan. And then you just kind of execute it. I wondered what your experiences were with that. Well, Capers, Capers isn't specifically a heist game, um, but there certainly Fair. can be plenty of heist shenanigans with the game because it's, you know, uh, uh, Prohibition era gangsters, so lots of yeah, uh, yeah. You know, stealing stuff from the competitors and whatnot, raiding warehouses. Um, but I mean, uh, a heist. I mean, just just speaking to this topic in general, Brandon brings up a great scenario. Like, just a heist in general is a great one for just like you said, engaging everybody. Um, and sometimes the the game has mechanics that are built to kind of address how all each character gets involved in the planning stage of the heist. And sometimes it's just like, well, let the players plan, let them all figure out what they you know what they think they're going to do. And of course, you know, heists follow the same rules as most combats, which is you know once it starts, <laughs> yep. the, the plans don't necessarily survive right. past the first two or three actions. Um, but it it but it's one of those things that. Like, even if the combat swings more towards certain characters kind of doing most of the heavy lifting in the combat, if, if there were players who had a strong involvement in the planning, then, and, and some of what they talked about in the planning comes to fruition 
during the, the combat or the heist itself, then um, those players are being very engaged because they're getting to see you know, the, the suggestions that they had get played out for good or ill. Yeah, there are some systems that are like really good for this and some that are really bad for engaging players all at the same time. Like, I, I one of the biggest problems I have with the, how the combat runs in D&D is that when you're doing combat, it's one person's turn and then everyone else is waiting. I mean, they might mm -hmm. be thinking about what they'll be doing next, but your action might not necessarily help or hurt your the next person's action unless it's giving them advantage of, of some sort of like flanking positions. Um, and a lot of the onus is on the GM in those types of games for creating those scenarios often ahead of time, planning out those those encounters ahead of time, um, especially when it comes to traps or things like that. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's never yeah. bad to homebrew. In my opinion, it's never bad to homebrew. Uh, maybe some people will disagree with me, but I love homebrewing, and I only homebrew, I feel like. Um, if there's a rule I want to change, I will change it to make it more fun for my players. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's when you're getting into the, okay, now it's your turn, now it's your turn, now it's your turn kind of set up, it, it kind of drags for other players. Um, compare that to, like, uh, some of the Powered by the Apocalypse games, like Monster of the Week, for example, um, there's not necessarily a turn order that people go into, but you, as the the keeper, talk about the situation, the dangers present, and what is happening there can greatly impact um, what what you do as a player can greatly impact what the other players might do during the next round, or what dangers you set up or, or <coughs> ignore um, during one round of combat uh, can really greatly affect how the battle goes itself and also what's going to happen down the line. It's not necessarily, oh, you hit them and I'm going to hit them next. A suggestion for combining the planning sort of um, along with like the actual combat or turn-based, whatever it is, action sequence, if there's like, like, you know, anything that's kind of breaks things down into turns. Um, Again, I'm going <laughs> to, mostly because I've got it in my head, because I'm running it a bunch and it's just fulfilled, but good strong hands. Um, the initiative sy system that I use for that is, like, if Brandon, if you decide you're going to do something that's going to kick off whatever the action sequence is, um, you get to go first. I don't have any, people don't roll for it. Like, somebody, it, somebody it's, 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 the, it's the showdown, right? It's like somebody does something that kicks it into that mode, right? Um, and then when you finished your turn, you choose who goes next from the players. Oh, okay, yeah. And then, yeah. And then it gets passed around like that. Um, and if you have a GM where you're just doing reaction stuff, like you can just react to stuff that people are doing and you can kind of insert like the bad guys doing stuff in between. If you need to have like specific turns, then you know you can, um, you can institute rules where you can, you know, you, you can, the GM can insert their... Uh, NPC turns at certain intervals or, you know, you can't necessarily suddenly, like, pile them all at the front or, like, you, you just put something in place that everybody agrees to. But I've found that having that thing where the players choose who goes next does um, two things. It puts planning into the middle of the game if you don't mind a little metagaming because players will choose, like, who is, like, the right person to go next. Like, this yeah, person yeah. was doing this thing. Well, we, we need them to do that again right now. <laughs> Um, but that's still fun. And you get it right, yes. and you get a little bit of metagaming out of it, and it, if you're okay with that. 
Um, and then it also, it also means that you could go at any moment. So it keeps the players engaged because like at yeah, any yeah. moment, it might be their turn. Um, at least part of the time until your turn is passed for the round. So like, you know, like when the first per when Brandon goes, like Jess and I are both like, okay, I could be next. I, I need to be, I need to know what I'm going to do right now. I need to be engaged with like, where is this, where is the story at at this moment? Because I might be the next person to go. A game that does that really well is Clockwork Dominion. They have uh, a mechanic where you can flip over two cards to jump in to whatever is happening at the, like as a reaction. Like, I'm going to do this now um, instead of waiting for my turn. Um, you have to basically expend two initiative cards unless you have a special card, in which case you only have to flip one. Um, and and that has been really fun because at any moment, you might decide to, to join in, to pop into the initiative. Um, and uh, that it's it's you you always feel like you're able to do something. And in addition to, they have uh, mechanics that allow um, some of the like your social reactions to bring down people's guard, which is kind of like uh, like what you, you have to bring down their guard before you can actually deal damage to them. Um, so they have a like lot a of mechanics there. Yeah, like a taunt or or or, or a distraction and things like that. Um, and. Baker Street does something similar to what you were describing, uh, Craig, where the in the initiative order, you you pick who goes next. But if you wait until the end of the initiative round and you let the the mastermind go, the the GM there uh, go last, and it goes to another round, the mastermind can then pick themselves to go first in the next round and basically gets two turns in a row. So you have to be really kind of like. You really have to think about what you're doing um, as a player um, and making sure that everyone's trying to set up things. Although combat in that game is 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 kind of tamped down because it's mostly a mystery solving game. Right, and it depends um. on it depends on the mechanics. If you're playing a game where you've mm -hmm. got to make okay, I got to make a, a hit roll and a damage roll, and I got to do a, make a check when I do my movement, then you know that's going to slow your turn down, which means it takes yeah. longer to get to other people. If you've got a game where it's like everything is in one roll, things can move faster, so the players will be, you know, so if, if I mean, that might be one of the solutions. Is if you've got a group of players and you're playing one game and it seems like people are getting really kind of bored and waiting for ever for their turn, you know, it. there's nothing wrong with trying a game that keeps things faster and tighter, where like when your turn yeah. comes up, you decide to do a thing and you make one roll and that resolves everything. <laughs> Um, rather than having to, you know, roll 10d6 and then there's a saving throw and yeah. <laughs> for every monster that got hit by the fireball. There's some things that just, that. that just slow everything down and it sometimes can be harder to keep all the players engaged if there's a lot of pause between your turns. Uh, this yeah, has all been, um, like, the like, the actual combat kinds of things, but I find uh, where, like, I'll get one player talking more than others are in the social downtime type um, sessions uh, and I've found that one of the great ways to engage people is to like especially if you have a quieter player it's not always talking that is engaging like if you're the person who's talking you're the most engaged sometimes if you are being talked about that is a method of engaging that player so making your player the the object of a making a, a character the object of a conversation making them a MacGuffin in a situation. Like, you are the only person who can do this, or you are actually so surprised the, the king's bastard son, or whatever. Um, bringing those char those characters or their character backgrounds in 
even if they aren't the ones who are actively speaking, gives them a reason or a purpose. And it's really fun to listen to people argue over your character. Um, I've always <laughs> really enjoyed that. I've always liked yeah. when people are talking about me as if I'm not there and they're deciding my fate and then I can have the dramatic, <laughs> whoa, what about me? Kind of moment. Um, that, that nicely sets things up. Um, so really making sure that you're using character backgrounds to add stakes for everybody. Um, every character should have a stake in the situation, whether or not it's like, I, I'm in it for the money and this is there's money on the line, or, oh, it turns out the big evil bad guy is my long lost mother <laughs> or, or other insert familial <laughs> relation here. Um, it, it never fails to get people engaged. Make them the damsel in distress or the the damsel in shining armor. Or or involve. I think, oh, sorry, go ahead, Brandon. I think the to yeah, point with like the social stuff. Another thing, at least a classic that everyone knows to that D and D is that that insight role in a way does involve people in a way when they're going like wanting to pay attention. I do agree also with the talking about players, um, or. Yeah, or like their deeds in a way also does engage them because not all of my players want to sit there and talk. A lot of them just like to listen a lot of time when the social ones happen. I have certain one players that I play with that are like, yep, they definitely want to they want to talk. They want to show what their character is and be in character. I'm also one of those pl players when I am a player. I like to be in character. Um, but I, I don't but there are people who just enjoy the presence being around other people, uh, getting their like what do you think? And like, what, there are two cents in here and there, and then that's it. Then they're they're good for like the whole encounter. Yeah, and you can do that by encouraging players to involve the other players' characters, however uh, briefly or in minor ways. Like the 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 one that struck me as Jess was talking earlier was like you've got the social manipulator who's trying to get information out of somebody, and then there's a player who's like, I play the brute. My my character beats the crap out of people, and the social manipulator, you know incorporates into their manipulation well you don't want my buddy here to come over here and you know rough you up um and so then that that player gets a moment to say well my, my character goes up and like you know flexes and looks mean and they get briefly engaged um in in the story that's going on even though like you know the social stuff isn't necessarily their their jam but they get to contribute to it through what their character does yeah like you wouldn't want to mess with or you'd want to say yes because of so-and-so over here and then the other person just walks up and like grins at them or whatever yeah, yeah. and that's it that's all they need to be involved in smashes a yeah. aluminum yeah. can on their head and laugh I, and that's their moment i also <laughs> am an advocate for secret note passing as a gm <laughs> yeah. yes I love, I love you get a secret note. note you get a secret note as a player like ooh, only i know about this and then everyone else wants to know what you know so they will automatically ask you questions about it even though it's metagaming at that point but that's a great way to like just secretly passing someone a note automatically gets people like "Ooh, what's going on there's a so this is a little different but there's a about this is about notes there's a fight that i did um with a vampire that they didn't know was a vampire when they started uh and yeah, at the start i i charmed one of them uh it was it was a success so i then passed all of them a note because I had them all roll something to perceive it. Um, the people, the baseline was there are two people flanking the door that you just came in. So three people got that message. One person got a so and so was charmed 
because they ended up noticing. And the last one was, you're charmed. You're going to act like this person is now your best friend and you'll do everything to protect them. And uh, the three people who thought that they saw the people behind them were like, cool, I got everything. I know it all. <laughs> yep. <laughs> and uh, they were a little bit more surprised when the other person stopped acting in the best interest of the party. And that was a fun moment, uh, at least for me. It's a really good way to handle things like insider perception roles in a game like D&D where everyone technically has the opportunity to do it, but really only the highest number matters if they're able to talk. But mm -hmm. giving them, like writing it down and giving it to them um, is wonderful. I My GM that I, well, back when we were able to play in person, uh, which will be soon again, um, had a stack of pre-written cards with different things you might get out of an insight. Like, uh, this person seems to be telling the truth. This person seems to be hiding something. Stuff like that. And that way, you could just give it to them. They'd look at it and give it back. And you could do that with everybody who rolled. So you wouldn't know, was this good enough? Did I know? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Do I know that they're telling the truth? Well, I just know what I know, I guess. Yeah. Um, and you can't, like, say it in the middle of the conversation. Because right. that would like break the flow of the conversation. Mm -hmm. And then yeah. you, as a, you as the GM, don't have to say it out loud in front of everybody. And then everyone, you know, if you know the secret information, you, you're <laughs> going to want to use it. There are going to be people who mm -hmm. will use it. Um, there will be the people who are like, no, my character doesn't think that. So I think that they're still cool. But yeah, it's, it's hard to pretend that you don't know something and not act on that. Yeah, for sure. And then I think one last thing I just wanted to bring up with um, with engaging players is the physical positioning of yourself and your players. Um, making sure that you can see mm -hmm. all of them is really important. If you're somebody like me who has um, hardly any working memory, uh, I have often like sat like this. Um, I am turned to the side if you're only listening audio and then mm -hmm. forgotten everybody who was in my blind spot. And only talk to, and then realize like oh it's been a couple minutes maybe I should turn to the other side. Uh, I've I've said this before on on the show, but um, it it bears repeating for people who um, who may have uh, attention regulation issues. <laughs> um, and if you have quiet players, put them right next to you, so that they yep. don't get lost on the other side of the table. Fair, yeah. If they you know if in quiet you know, as in like they don't get directly involved a lot or even literally like vocally volume wise they're they're soft if they're low talkers <laughs> make sure that they're nearby um okay. especially if you're playing in a in a noisy place and there's it's all good next oh Jess, what's it's up our next? our other special guest uh co-host the sirens oh that's what's <laughs> next um well up uh, next our next topic is uh graphic design and layout so our our game designer topic, okay. uh, which is a, a pretty big topic, graphic <laughs> design and layout. Yeah. We're going to try to cover very quickly. <laughs> At some, I, there will be a time, I'm sure, when we will go do a deep, deep dive into, oh, yeah. into graphic design. Um, but just kind of an overview for the purposes of anybody out there who is perhaps putting a game together and is getting to the point where they are starting to think about, okay, what's this product going to look like? 
Yeah, so a lot of people use a program called Adobe InDesign, um, but the big problem with Adobe InDesign is that they recent, pretty recently, it's, I mean, it's been a couple of years now, but they switched over to a subscription type service. So you have to pay every month or every year to access the programs and it's really cost prohibitive, even if you have a student discount. So I know a lot of people now are using Affinity. Um, Affinity yep. is also a suite of programs. They have they have like a Photoshop type, a publisher type, and a, and a designer type, um, like um, where you can do graphics, um, vector stuff. In yep. um, yep. so that one, you just have to pay for the program, and then you have it. it it's yours. You're you're done, um, and you can you can have it um, on two different computers at once if you use two different devices. And they're 50, uh, I, they're 50 bucks a piece and they run sales like all the time. All the time. I got, I yep. have all, all of mine I got for $25. So I paid a total of $75 and I'm done. And it's like more than $75 I feel like a month for Adobe. It's ridiculous. Yeah. yeah. Yep, but yep. There, there are programs too that you don't need to pay for. Um, I know some people have used Microsoft Publisher. Is that what it's called? Um, so. Oh, I don't know. Yeah, there are, there some people have used available. that. If you're doing a little tiny zine kind of thing with just like black and white stuff, you can do it all in Word. If you don't mm -hmm. mind mm -hmm. just dealing with Word's limitations for how you oh. lay stuff out. I actually don't like Word for that kind of design. I like to use either PowerPoint or Google Slides because with Microsoft Word, it's supposed to be a word processor. So its features aren't great for moving pictures around and moving um, like changing backgrounds and things like that. But yeah. with Google Slides, you get you can move the pictures around. They will tell you when things are lined up. So it has guidelines. Um, you do have to do a little bit of stuff up front to make it whatever size you want, but you can change the sizes of your documents in that program. And you can still export it to PDF and we'll have all of your pages. Um, you don't have to worry about things sticking off the margins because like in Microsoft Word, you move something to the margins and then maybe your image will disappear. Maybe I'm bad at Microsoft Word, but it no, does weird think, things. Think it the, jumps around. I think the point is that if you're, if you're dealing just with PDF yeah. stuff and it's relatively simple, you can you can oh, lay yeah. it out in damn near Easily. any mm -hmm. software that can handle words and pictures. Yeah, that's uh, all you need. It's just a question of what kind of crap you want to deal with because every software mm -hmm. has crap associated with it. Yeah. Um, the more expensive a program is, usually the better features it has. Like Affinity um, but, is pretty close to what Adobe has, but Adobe does have some things that I like that, and I only have access to Adobe through my work, so. Yeah, and and but at the same time, cost and then also the learning curve is significant. Mm -hmm. Like when you, yeah. you start to get into softwares that are designed specifically for laying things out like that, um, yeah. you, you, you know, just be prepared if that's the direct direction you're going to go with Affinity or uh, or Adobe, you're going to be spending some time figuring out how to do it. And because if you're doing this like just as a side gig and everything, because you don't do it all the time, you're going to relearn the same thing. Yep. Every yep. so often, because like I've I've found myself doing that with you know doing layout myself in in Affinity, where I'm like, okay, I did this two weeks ago, <laughs> I did yeah. a thing. Okay, how do I do that again? And then you got to go find a tutorial or the instructions or whatever. A really good hack is to go back in time and be a high schooler and be on the newspaper design class and learn <laughs> how to use these programs and then continue to use them as a teacher teaching journalism. Um, I did that. It was great. I really recommend it for everybody. You went back um, in time? Yeah. 
No one. Wow. <laughs> just keep that. Keep that for quiet. <laughs> yeah, I always forget how hard it is. Every year, I teach several students how to use Adobe InDesign to design a newspaper, and I sit there and think, "Why are you taking so long? Why is this taking you so long to figure out how to make a text <laughs> box?" And I forget that I've had years of experience using this program. Because um, yeah, they're they're looking at a screen that has a hundred thousand buttons on it. Yeah. Roughly. And you go, yeah, but, well, it's that button right there. Or it's that pull down, you know, like, yeah. So but you probably yeah, just, already be, know how to be use. Be prepared for the, for the learning curve. Yeah, you probably already know how to use like a Microsoft Word or, or Google Docs or Google Slides. So use what's familiar and comfortable to you and learn how to use your interface uh, for your first game. Make things easier for you by learning your interface, learning your keyboard shortcuts, and that's going to save you a lot of time. So that's like the, the mechanical gist of things. The actual art gist of design and, and layout is another creature. It's another now, set now, of Now, very quickly, in 10 minutes. Um, <laughs> um, As a... basic, how about basic watchwords? Basic things to keep in mind um, and pointers on where they can where, uh, resources where you can find more information as far, because we're not going to be able to teach like how to do good you know, layout design, page design in, in a short period of time. I don't have great advice on this one because I'm still pretty. I'm still learning this. Um, what I have picked up in my in my time, at least, is just a like. I thought Affinity wasn't wasn't too difficult to pick up. I, I took maybe two sessions before. I'm like, okay, cool. I'm pretty comfortable with this. Yes, I forgot it once or twice, um, and then I had to relearn aspects of it. But a lot of the time, it's just the flow of information, and then having pictures um, placed often enough to break that flow. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's like, that's the main part is you're trying to not let, like you don't want the reader to get tired or bored. Mm -hmm. And a wall of text is intimidating. You go and look at it and go, ah, oh, no, nope, not for this section for me. Let's go somewhere else. Uh, having sections off to the side where you want, like this is included in helpful information. I'll highlight kind of a different color, set it off to the side and go, this is relevant to that, but you don't need it right now. And I indicate that with another color. So setting up a set, the set of rules to kind of teach what information is really helps people understand that information. Yeah. You, you, one of the elements of design is like where someone's eye naturally goes. Um, mm -hmm. So in, in this kind of like S type curve, um, specifically talking about people who read like English, you're, you're reading from left to right. Of course, it will be different um, if you are designing yeah. for a different uh, language group. Um, you, whatever is at the top and to the left is going to grab people's attention and what is bigger is going to grab people's attention. So if you have a piece that you want people to look at first, make it the biggest thing on the page or make it the top left on the page. So that's that's one element of design that you, you should start with um, when you're looking at your page. Uh, and like Brandon said, wall of text, your eye has nowhere to go. Your eye doesn't know what to look for next. Same thing goes with elements on the page that are all the same size or all the same color, for example. Your eye doesn't know where to go and it feels confusing and it's harder to read. Um, so you do want to break it up into sections. You want to make sure that the flow is natural um, for whatever, if you're reading left to right or, or right to left or 
down, right to left, however, whatever language you're looking at, you want to make sure that it flows naturally with that language group. Because um, that's how your eye just, your brain is going to do that without you trying. Um, and then there are other things you can do, like Brandon too, you mentioned color differences. If it's in a different color, your brain will classify it as different information. If there's a line, your brain is going to think, oh, stop, that's a stopping point. And if there's white space, your brain is going to think, oh, this is a barrier as well, although it's a softer barrier. So that use of white space is also important for grouping. Um, and white space in general, um, really you're gonna be trying to design with that white space in mind. It is mm -hmm. an element of its own. Um, you don't wanna fill the entire page. That's how things become busy. And again, harder to read. And what, by, by white space, I just mean like any space that doesn't have something in it. So if your background is black, it's technically going to be that black space. It's just empty space. You want to have like that. A, like a rest for your eyes. Right. Mm -hmm. it, it tells your, yeah. A little bit of space between individual lines of text so that they don't sit right on top of each other. A little more space between paragraphs. Um, or like you know, in, with to uh, on the top and bottom of headers, so that they pop out a little bit more, so that you have a break point. Like visually, there's a break. You read yeah. the paragraph, you read the paragraph, you read the paragraph, and then you got a header, and then like it's just like this visual break for your for your eye to not have a bunch of stuff right in that spot as you're scanning down. And now you can just read that two or three word header, and then move to the next piece. And then you know the same thing goes for like tables and bullet points and stuff. Is try to spread that, um, kind of open that up. Don't don't have super yeah. tight tables. Um, nitpicky bit of of tables for me. Um, more than five lines on a table, because if you've got multiple columns, if you've got more than five lines on a table, people can't follow the table from left to right. They don't know what box goes to what box. At the be this beginning box to that end box. That's why you see tables where like every th group of three or every group of five has a different color shading underneath it so you can like, you can look at it in groups and say okay there's here's a group of five lines I can tell that's the top one that's the middle one that's the bottom one and those are the two that are just inside the top and bottom yeah I would um, really recommend not using lines in your tables except for maybe the top and any like major sections that are like the the header sections because each of those lines reads to your brain like a new piece of data and especially with all of them in a row it's going to look Hard. I would. It's yeah, it's can, much easier to see shading versus shading versus no shading. Just have like here's five lines with shading, five lines with no shading, five lines yep. with shading, five lines with no. And, yep. just ma and maybe there's just lines that kind of punctuate the top and the bottom of the table, or maybe you use a line as sort of an underline for the table header. You know where all that where the where the column, each column has yeah. you know like you know <laughs> cost weight whatever you know you've got listed yeah. for your weapon tables or whatever. <laughs> Tables suck so bad in design, and it's so it's so awful because we use them so much as game designers. There are a lot of things that tables are good for because a lot of the stuff you're doing is math-based in a game. Um, they never look good. They will never look beautiful. I've never seen a beautiful table. I've only seen okay tables. <laughs> and every program I've ever used in my life, it's like the 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 designers of the program also said, well. I hate tables, so I'm going to make everyone else hate make, them too. Make them as difficult to make <laughs> as possible. They're terrible. Here's um, here's a here's a hint for when it comes to table stuff. When you're designing, because I've got a bunch of tables in a thing I'm working on right now, 
is, but I, I, I set it up, you know, like the game design is like, okay, like there's a bunch of tables that are, roll a d10 and here's 10 options that are listed in a table. And so that table, once I make that table look really nice, is going to get copied around all over the place. Like, you know, don't, don't yep. saddle yourself with 50 different types of tables. Try to find a way to standardize how you're presenting information in tables so that you've got like, okay, here's like, I've got a three-column table and a four-column table and a five-column table, and that's all I need. It's just a question of how many rows there are because now I can just add rows and subtract rows easily enough and copy pieces around. Um, yeah, it's, oh, tables are a pain in the Tables, I hate them. I hate them so much. Which also, is why, if you don't need to put it in a table, don't put it in a bullet list. Bullet lists are great. If you only have like five, six, seven things, hell, even if you got ten or twelve, bullet lists are wonderful. If you can convey, are, if you yeah. can convey a, a little bit of information in a bunch of bullet points, and and uh, the human brain likes those little compartmentalized bits of information. Here's like ten bullet point lists of of like one of the things you see in a lot of my games is like you know. Uh, tropes that the that the game is built around, like that the GM can use as inspiration. Like here's twelve things, and they're quick to read because they're all only three or four words long. And so, you're so also, think about that when you're designing. Is the point? Yeah, you're also <laughs> going to want to look at as much design as possible, either in games that you think look nice, because a lot of this is a subjective thing. There's not a lot of objective rules for design, um, but uh, uh, like the, what makes something beautiful is is this completely in your own brain kind of thing. So look at books that you like, that you enjoy. Look at the things that they do and and copy those things. Look at not just that, but magazines and newspapers, especially magazines. Magazines um, can do so many wonderful things with their layout, uh, and you'll you'll learn techniques that you might not have noticed before um, and you can copy those elements you just have to learn how to do them in your program later and thank goodness we have this wonderful resource called youtube um, you can find basically anything in youtube including basics of design classes um, you can there there are youtube series um, out there uh, that that teach people some of those basics of layout design it's usually for ads like people who do ads and marketing, but the the principles are the same. The principles of design yeah. are the same. There are also principles of design. I, I should have mentioned that. There are some principles of design that you can look up. I don't know them off the top. Look, of my look head. up graphic design grids. That'll get you fifty percent of the way through a decent graphic exactly. layout. Is just yeah. knowing how yeah. you can break up break break up information and say I'm gonna I'm gonna have my pages can be broken up into four, you know, chunks top to bottom, and they might have three columns. Um, and so sometimes I'll just have text that just runs across the whole page, and sometimes I'll have like a symbol on the left, and then there two thirds of the column is information. And I, if I repeat that and I use that throughout the book, it makes it all very cohesive, um, because you're going to see the same kinds of densities of ink on a lot of different pages, even though inf different information is being presented. Where, like, if you look at um, Blades in the Dark is an excellent example of um, uh, symbols and um, you know like little information, little 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 graphics and symbols and things that are over on the left, and then text to the right of it. And there's plenty of times when it's just text left to right. Um, but throughout the course of the book, there's all these little spots where there's all these little symbols that are they're always there's like maybe five different symbol layouts that are used in the entire book, and and they're 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 all used multiple times. 
so that like every time you go like, oh, that's exactly how they laid out this, that's exactly how they laid out that. So like it, yeah. the, the book itself has a vocabulary. The design has a vocabulary Complex. that you become I, I like, that, that you become uh, used to. I like to. that word. Yeah, you become used to it, and it becomes easier to navigate it. And every book is going to be different. And you're never, ever, ever going to design a book that's laid out perfectly for everybody. Mm -hmm. So don't kick yourself over that. Do as good of a job as you can. And Jess's point of like, pick out the stuff that you like, that you think looks good, and design to that. Because ultimately, yeah. you, you like want that. ultimately you want to be product. You want to be proud of your uh, gain of of your layout of your product that you're putting together too. Um, I I like your your use of the word vocabulary there, for when you talk about like the vocabulary of your book. I I'm a fan for in design in design of your game. You should have a vocabulary uh, and a rule set which you follow for your game, but. Within the design, you should follow some of those same principles of like when they learn the rule set of how you lay out your book, it makes them easy. It makes it easier to understand and parse and learn that information because that's what you're trying to do. They have to first learn what you're, how you present information. And if you use the same one through, use the same vocabulary, use the same rule set, it makes it that much easier for people to pick up. Oh, okay. Well, this section is going to now talk about this. This is the main part of this page about ships, and this is the main part and about booze for the gangster game right like now you know that these are the rules there and you go main section up here then down here i can some mechanics about it and then you you follow along you can just like in a way reference it later when you will need it and that's yeah. that's more powerful than just learning the rules learning how to use the book in a quick effective manner is probably even better than just knowing all the rules to the game and that's where that vocabulary and rule set comes into and there's a hierarchy to that vocabulary in, in the best instances. I've been trying to do this with Nowhereville. I'm not the best at all of this, but for example, um, in this, on the page, it's like there's one page where it describes how trait checks are resolved. And it's like if you get zero, if you get no hits, if you get one hit, or if you get two or more hits, and then there's information to the side of that. There's basically a narrow column and a, and a, and a wide column, and they're grouped, the three different possibilities. Um, and then that kind of layout happens a few other times in the book. And what I'm telling you is, mechanically speaking, uh, when you roll your dice, what the results are is important. You can, everybody can agree with yeah. that in, in game mechanics. The results of the dice are one of the most important thing, things in mechanics. And when I use that same kind of basic layout for something that doesn't have to do with dice rolling, what it's telling you is this part is also important because I'm using the same vocabulary. And so just mentally, you're going to make that connection. Like, this isn't dice rolling, but it's some other thing that's laid out the exact same way. The best, like, comparison when it comes to other types of media for games, for, for a tabletop game or, or book or zine or whatever, is a textbook. Like, think of your, your textbooks when you were in school. Good textbooks have a layout that is consistent throughout. You know exactly what to expect because you are having this learning experience. The whole purpose of layout is the user experience, uh, the user interface, I should say, for the game. And if you're designing without your players in mind, you're doing your game a disservice, just like everything when it comes to game design, design with purpose, and that purpose being this reader, this player is going to have the best time possible. They're going to have the best and easiest time possible. And uh and then worry about the pretty stuff. If you though, if you're going to design it and it starts looking like a textbook, I feel like a lot of us might remember 
having to read those textbooks, and then we're going to have an unpleasant experience. Oh, yes. I'm not saying design it like your worst textbook. <laughs> you want to make it better than a textbook. You want to make it friendly. A lot of textbooks are not friendly. It turns out the people that design yeah. those textbooks usually not super great designers. They have a lot of text yeah. and very few pages. Yeah. I think maybe like brochures might be another spot to look. If we could like blend a textbook with a brochure, which is kind of what we're doing anyway, because we're a lot more technical than any marketing thing ever is going to be. Yeah. But we need to be far more entertaining than what a textbook's going to be. And it's that sort of blend that you're doing. Because there are some really pretty books out there that you're like, oh man, I just want to open this up, like look at all these things. And then also I'm going to read the text here. Um, but like that's... That's something that it is, like, you can strive for. You don't have to be that, like, brochure side of things. But you can't be that, like, oh, I hate opening this book. Like, there's some rule books for board games that I go and look at and go, ah, oh, this game's so much fun, but, like, the first time I had to parse this rule book, it was, it was, <laughs> it was a journey. I have a couple books on the shelf that are like that. Um, and it's usually, like, the attack of the wall of text. And you really should have some sort of visual element, not necessarily a picture, but some sort of visual element on every page. Um, yeah. Whether that's a design element of some sort or an actual image, just to break it up. Even like a, to use a, a, some vocabulary from newspapers and, and magazines, a pull quote where, okay, a pull quote technically is a quote that you're taking from the text, you're putting it in a box, Usually it wraps around um, something, it's something poignant um, and you put it in the middle of the text and it's like this little box that the rest of the text wraps around. It breaks up the flow of things and is an eye catcher. Um, in a lot of games that I've read, they'll use that. It's usually more to the side, um, but it'll be something like a, a note that's in, that's in fiction. Um, I see a lot of that. I really personally like that. It's my favorite thing in like a D&D &D rule book where you get the little notes from whoever character. Um, it's fun. Those, those count as elements of design. Just anything that is breaking up the text. I did that in, in papers way. when I dis discovered that I had a lot of little white space. I went back and created a series of sidebars that, are a, that boils the sidebars and you have to follow it through the whole book. Um, but it's a conversation between a cop and a witness. And so that like, kind of stuff's every, cool. every, every few pages, there's like this little, you know, the cop says two things and the witness says two things, and it tells a whole story of, of a crime. We're, that's really neat. And were you lucky enough up, to get... Like, up white space. Were you lucky enough to get feedback on that? Not specifically. It was, it was kind of late, okay. in the, late in the game. It was like literally like laying the thing out and realizing like, well, I've got a bunch of chapters where I've got you know, like a lot of white space. And so I did some, we, we, we pushed some stuff around and I found, you know, a way to kind of lay out like there's maybe a dozen or 15 yeah. of these little, these little sidebar blurbs. And they're, they're in a different color with a different sidebar header that kind of sets them off as just like you said, like this little flavor thing that you could, you could literally just not look at the rest of the book and just flip through, flip page by page and find each one of those and, and read the little story. Okay. Mission for anybody who watches this. Uh, read that in in Craig's book for capers, uh, and say and if you like it, go find him at a convention and say, hey, this <laughs> this thing was really cool. That's a new new mission. Um, yeah, that's that's a really cool thing to do, Craig. I like I like that idea a lot. Yeah, and, and you can you know that's that's a white space thing too. Like 
Um, if you got a little bit of white space here and there, there's nothing wrong with having a little bit of white space at the bottom of a page. If you got a lot of pages that that's happening on, um, you know, a little piece of spot art, uh, spot illustration, or a little spot graphic or something um, yeah. that's thematic will work really well for that um, to, to fill that space. Even if it doesn't fill the whole space, it's just something to put in this little chunk of white area um, that helps to, again, and it breaks up um, uh, the whole, you know, it, it breaks up the visual. Um, I, I love the uh, Heavy Metal Thunder Mouse um, does this with um, motorcycle wheels. Like whenever there's a little white space left over at the, at, at, the, at the end of a section or a chapter, there's a motorcycle tire and there's a bunch of different ones. Huh. Oh, gosh. The, the New Yorker. Hold on. Let me see. <laughs> God, and newspapers would be good to look at for things. Well, something like a New Yorker. And for those of you who are just listening and not watching, uh, the New Yorker is, is notoriously hard to read because it will do stuff like this, where they'll just have three columns, solid text, oh. nothing broken up. Ah. But then but then sometimes they'll have, like, little images. <laughs> they'll have, like, a little image stuck that, in that there cut, to that fill up That cuts a piece out of each column. It doesn't really help. Like, I really don't like how the New Yorker um, is, is if you out, want but... If you want your game book to look like a textbook or a newspaper, make it three column. Do three column. Make it terrible. I hate three column. Personal opinion. Oh, yes, yeah, three column is terrible in a game book. It makes it look like a text. Like you said, it looks like a text. Yeah. There are some really nice newspapers out there. Go if, look if at what a, student a, newspapers are doing. I, Don't look I, at the I, New York Times. Go look at. But if it's, an eight, if it's an eight and a half by eleven page, two columns, you can do everything you need to do in two columns. Two you columns. don't need three. Three just it just it, it, you end up hyphenating words in weird spots. You end up with weird kerning, sometimes, um, and it's just hard. It, it and it looks like it. You I mean. Yeah. It's it's pretty good. it's good for following with the eye because your eye doesn't have to jump back very far for each line. Um, when you get to the end of one line, you can get to, you know boop down to the next line. But it again, like I said, it makes it look like a textbook. It just looks unappealing. It's isn't that like better because if you don't have to move your eye, that means you're understanding everything you're reading really quickly, so you're not getting tired. Well, we're writing rules. <laughs> we're writing things that are harder to parse. So it should be taken a little slower because you need that extra time to go, okay, wait, so if I'm rolling this die at this point, that means this. So I think that is one of the disconnects between the two. Like the New Yorker just wants you to easily read through the whole thing, not really get tripped up by the words and be like, I'm just going to make sure your eyes aren't getting tired. But for us, it's like, okay, your eyes aren't the problem here. You're, you're learning a new vocabulary to play this game. That's what's going to slow everything down. Yeah, and it's it's three columns all the way throughout, and it's like this every single time. Um, plus, to make things worse, it's all like stories, so it's not broken down really. Whereas, mm -hmm. like if you are writing rules, um, I'm gonna I'm gonna show this to the camera again. You don't ever want to have just a solid paragraph that runs half a page. Uh, oh, I mm -hmm. can't point. Look at that paragraph. That's so long. People's attention spans aren't really. That. You want to break that up with maybe uh, bullet points or you know some bullet points. You know words? what's you know what's a great way to make sure you don't have a super long paragraph is just indent more often and create new paragraphs. You can yeah. find a new subject sentence. You, if you've got a if you've got a par if you've got a paragraph that's twenty sentences long, it doesn't need to be twenty sentences long. I guarantee you, there's at least one breakpoint in that paragraph, maybe two. You can, for, um, you I can do forget it, I the do rules it, that you I do it. I do it like crazy. I do like little like I. I like I return and, and create a new paragraph pretty regularly. I don't usually go more than about five or six lines 
in a paragraph. That's, that's good. That's that's usually better for readability purpose. Um, um, and uh, a lot of people still, oh, sorry, a lot of people still follow like the rules that their English teacher told them that a paragraph has to be seven to ten sentences. That is not true. That is that is maybe if you're writing an essay. Please don't write an essay in your game. <laughs> you want to you want to have it be entertaining and interesting to read. Use the rules that novelists do. If you've got a sentence that's a really important sentence, that's a paragraph by itself. Mm-hmm. If you if you're making a point and there's really no support, there's nothing to build off of that. You're just like you're making a very important point. You can have a paragraph that's just one sentence. <laughs> and that's when he died. Yeah, Perfect. and I and, and italicize a word in there and really drive it home. You know. <laughs> Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. You know, I've, I've um, uh, not to give away anything about the game, but I've got a thing I wrote where uh, there was a, there was uh, one of the lines is, and it's a, it's it's its own line. It's a whole paragraph, and it's but that's a different story. Like I'm making the point that like this is the story we're talking about, and then we're talking about this other theoretical thing, but that's a different story. That's fun. I like that. And it's and it's its own line, and it just gets the point across, and then I move to the next thing. Next bit of information. Okay. Anyway, that's whew, graphic design. Wait, we're getting into we're, that's getting into more of some of the copy copy editing portion. I, I do, but it, but I, like I say, like look at novelists. Oh, boy, Stephen King is great for this. Little italicized things, little bolded things, to to you know put emphasis on, and it breaks up that that you know block of text. <coughs> Excuse me. Outside of just bullet points and tables and headers and stuff too, you can you know if you've got a, a paragraph that's got a couple, that. of, a couple of bolded words in it. That'll help, and it'll help you so get, I, get a point across. I did have a, I did have two questions. Well, one question. The other one uh, was more of a comment about uh, what Justin said. Kind of forget some of the things that you were taught in school and writing them because, like, I was always told to indent the first line of every paragraph. Uh, and then I went and read a book on typography, and about halfway through that book. <laughs> <laughs> and he mentioned that just don't ever don't indent them. And I'm I started I started trying both just to see what it looked like. And I realized, yeah, they all just look better when I don't indent that first line. I, I lose a lot of space. Um, I don't know. I just I like the way that it looks for at least for two columns when I don't indent that first <laughs> line. Uh, just a, a yeah. Aside on that. But I the question it. it's an aesthetic thing. Right now, my tendency yeah. is I don't indent I don't indent the first paragraph in the section right after the header, but then every paragraph after that gets indented. It helps to break oh, okay. it up. So it it, hang, it it takes that first paragraph and slams it underneath the header. It's like, okay, here's the header. Here's what this is about. Here's this important paragraph that's going to, you know, kind of set everything up. And then the rest of it is just information. But that's again, like 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 we were talking earlier. It's all aesthetic. Like it's yeah, it's art. Yeah. <laughs> we we should do an episode on typography at some point. I I tried yeah. to get uh, good strong hands laid out that way, and my graphic designer insisted on indenting every single one. And so I just let it slide. I was like, "That's fine. It looks good too." <laughs> as long as you're consistent throughout, like people look for oh, consistency. Oh yeah, that's, that's the big thing. I, I did have one question oh, sure. about one more question about graphic design for like when putting graphics in each page. Make sure we have one one small graphic on the page or something. I, I think can some of those graphics be like instructional graphics? Like this is showing an example. Like um, board games will do it a lot. But board games have that kind of unique, like, I'm going to show what my board looks like. This is how it looks all the time. Uh, but would that work as that graphic? And I think, the would, how do you feel about that in a, in a game? Well, yeah, that, that would definitely be some anything that is different than just text, for me, counts as, like, a graphic element. And that could even include, like, okay, you're breaking it up, and then you have a header of some sort. 
you're you're breaking that design up. It's better to have something larger, but even that will break things up. I've seen people use flowcharts to um, their advantage in games. Like it's an instructional piece, um, but it's a, this graphic element at the same time. Um, a, a, a graphic element could be something like a sidebar, for example. It could be like the little, um, like the splash art stuff that goes on the corners, like those corner caps. I don't know what they're called. Yeah, <laughs> like little, like all the little chapter markings. Those are all things that are um, elements of uh, like graphic elements. And then you're also still going to make sure that you're not having a full page of just text. You need to break it up with it's it's almost a necessary thing to break it up with like headers and having some white space in there um something just have so it's white not space, text, text, have, text 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 you know and and it can like literally can be any of those things it can be that yeah. one line that's bolded that gets a point across it can be you know if you got a couple of spots where something's bolded um it can be a, a like one little graphic that breaks up uh, the, the the wall of text um or you could have a page that is two-thirds description of stuff, just paragraph lines, you know, lines of, of writing, and one um, third of it is a sidebar that looks like that, that's just lines of writing, but it's got like a little shaded something behind it to set it off as a sidebar. That just helps to break it up a little bit too. More show and tell here. Like here <laughs> is the first, one of the first pages of the D&D Player's Handbook. It's all text, but there are still like those graphic elements on it. Um, so if you have your own copy of the Player's Handbook for 5e, this is page five. Uh, <laughs> they have this... Um, There's a name the, for that. Yeah, the giant first letter, the manuscript. Yeah, I can't remember what it's called. The giant first <laughs> they, letter at the beginning. <laughs> no idea. They have, these, they have these lines, and there's there's a section that's like lighter background to show, hey, this is something new. Um, kind of breaks it up. They do it again, and there's also headers um, for different sections. So even though this is all technically text, there are these elements of design that are within it that do break it up so it's not just text. It's not even the best laid out thing, but at least it breaks it up. They do a really good job of, of having art and stuff in their books, at least. <laughs> you can forgive the occasional page like that when they've got a piece of art on damn near every page. Basically everything, yeah. <laughs> um, well, there we yeah. go. That, I mean, there's so much I could talk about with with design. Yeah. Go look at books and go and go watch some YouTube videos. And and Brandon, tell me what that typography book is because I want to know. <laughs> I want to read it learn, too. Learn what letting and kerning are and how they can work for you. Oh, uh, Fifty man. to seventy yeah. characters per line is ideal. There's there's all sorts well, of other stuff. I'd I'd pull the book out except uh, it's in a box. And I don't yeah, know which box. Don't worry about it. <laughs> I have a pile of boxes. My entire life is in, in boxes. Uh, well, let's get to the potpourri topic for Ooh. today. Because I think that we've exhausted graphic design without getting into too much like detail. Um, and our potpourri topic for today is favorite worlds and IPs. Who wants to start? This was, this was a suggestion from Brandon way back, I think. Or did, or did this one come up in our discussion? I don't remember. I think it, it did come from oh. Maybe. I, if, if I suggested it, I have completely forgotten. <laughs> oh, this well, is just what's on my spreadsheet. I didn't write there, it. There was a, yeah, that's what I put up there. There's, there was a survey that went out to a bunch, you know, and people responded if they wanted to be on the show, and some people had, you know, listed things they wanted to, that they were interested in talking about. And I sometimes forget if, we, if it came from the survey or if we talked about it in email this yeah. past week. But anyway, the point is favorite worlds and IPs. Um, 
you know, uh, what what we're, we're a bunch of geeks. Like, what what IP don't we love? Like, there's <laughs> like almost every IP that you know that, that people know well. Um, somebody amongst the three of us probably really likes. Um, I'm going to throw out like things that I wish we had more IP information. I'd love to see expanded in some way, either in a game. I'd like to see more happen with with movies or a TV show or something. And I just found myself thinking about this the other day. It's like, I want to know everything there is to know about the world of Hellraiser. Um, <laughs> and the specifically like oh, the wow. Leviathan, the world that the Cenobites come from. Because we learn, like, we see Leviathan, we travel to it, we learn kind of how the Cenobites get made, where they come from. Um, there's, you know, there's some incredible inconsistencies in that in, in some of the movies because the movies are not uh, like a cohesive story. But, like, it's an incredibly interesting um, just intellectual property kind of world that, that Clive Barker created. And then um, they're just, there's just not enough like enough information. I think I think the the world of this of the of Hellraiser could be a an interesting kind of smaller scale role playing game where if you explored that world more. That's just yeah. off the top of my head. <laughs> I don't know oh. much about that world, sorry. No, it's it's a demon realm basically. <laughs> but it's uh couched in all the weird sexuality and and um fetishism and things that Clive Barker likes to explore in his books and uh and in his life i is my understanding is the guy is pretty open <laughs> and free with a lot of that stuff um like like from, from the popular side i think like the the most interesting ip that i'm personally enjoying right now is the marvel cinematic universe oh, yeah. mostly because i'm getting to discover it as we go because i'm not a comic book person yeah. So there's some that's stuff been... that there's there's some stuff that I do know that I've picked up over the years just from hanging around with nerds, but there's always like you know like there's just little there's little things that pop up every so often is like and, and somebody says like well this was an Easter egg for whatever and I was like oh I gotta go find out what that is now because it, like <laughs> something popped up in Loki or you know popped up on um, in an Ant Man movie that like was just an offhanded you know mention. Um, or Guardians of the Galaxy or whatever. Like, there's, like, these little things that they're using that they're setting up future stuff, or it's just, you know, an interesting little Easter egg for people. Yeah, I've they're been, really I've been using, enjoying that one a lot. They're really using, like, the multiverse stuff to their advantage. Like, how comics just are, like, you get a new writer working on something, they're going to change things, they're going to be different things out of canon. And they're really using that to their advantage, and they have in the comics, too to just do kind of what they want in this new arc of movies. They've already been doing it with the TV shows. Um, I really like Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Well, they, example, they, the so. argument I think is I've that recently Agents... started watching that. Oh, it's so good. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> the, argu the argument, because the, the Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. was divested kind of from mm -hmm. the movies. They're, they're kind of hint at some stuff here and there early on, but then they kind of stop really doing anything. Yeah. They talk about other characters. They talk about Tony the Stark movies... and everybody. The movies are canon in the show, but the show is not canon to the movies. It's like this weird relationship. Right, like but the, really, the only movies some, yeah, really only some acknowledge. of the early movies, and I think what they're trying to tell us, and I, I could have sworn I read something like that, is like the, the assumption is that the, the, the world of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. is one of the Earth universes, you know, Earth not yeah. with a number, but it's not the one that the, cinema, the cinematic universe exists in. Like, MODOK 
on Hulu right now is in a different Earth. Like, all the stuff that happens in the, in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, those characters exist. Like, there is an Iron Man. But Iron Man does not do the things that Iron Man did in the MODOK world. Because they're, they're, they just want to be able to use the characters um, and just, you know, because it's a comedic take. So, like, you know, MODOK steals Iron Man's boot, I think, like, with a boot off of his Iron Man armor. <laughs> um, and, and Tony Stark, you know, speaks, and it's not Robert Downey Jr.'s voice. Um, but he's, you know, but he's clearly being Tony Stark and Iron Man, but, like, they're... Like there was, there was, there was not a Battle of New York in the Marvel universe. So I'm, I'm still just getting into Agents of Shield. I guess, well, maybe not just at this point. I've, I've seen the first th- three seasons, so I prefer not if you don't spoil it past that. <laughs> but from what I've gathered so far, um, it still feels like they reference each other often, and Agents of Shields are pl- playing to a point where it's like they're handling all the small stuff. And then they resolve their own issues, and they also are a covert organization, so it's okay that the big heroes don't know about it. Is how I've been like, yeah, that's it's fine if they're in the same place. It. That's how they've yeah. lampshaded it. Mm-hmm. I'm just like, that's way. fine. There's more. There's more to it later. Yeah. There's, okay. there's, if, if you've watched three seasons of Agents of Shield, you've seen that their threats are getting bigger and bigger. It's like, the yeah. problem with any shows like that. They're, that threats escalates. will constantly, yeah. They, yeah. It, like it, in it Supernatural. Escalates. By the time you get to like the last, you know, like when they started in the first one, it was like, oh, we're running around gathering artifacts. And then by the time you get to the, the final season, it was like, we're saving the universe. We just murdered God. <laughs> what happened? Yeah. yeah. It's it's wild. It's it's like the Supernatural problem. Like first you fight some ghosts and then you're fighting some demons and then you fight the devil and then you fight the devil's uncle. Uh, <laughs> like it just keeps getting worse. <laughs> that reminds me of Fringe. Fringe was good for that. It started as like, a supernatural procedure or like super science procedural and then by the time you got to the end of, of fringe it was like literally saving the entire world like saving humanity are there are there any shows that didn't, every time didn't do that oh there's plenty of shows that really didn't do that i mean i think um I, should, I shouldn't say plenty because hell angel and buffy both did it by the end of they were saving the world like in a huge ass way in the end of each of those so, shows Murder yeah. <laughs> I, actually, for for Buffy specifically, I feel like the first four felt pretty much similar power level, except for maybe the first one. She kind of lucked out, but the what the three after felt pretty much very similar power level. The fifth one was noticeably higher. Sixth was lower, and then the last season was like, okay, now we're going up back to that level of five. Well, I think or seven. I think six across the course of the season, season six of Buffy. Um, Jess, are you familiar? Nope. Do, do you care? Uh, I mean, you can spoil it for me. That's fine. I are, I've actually season read six, all the spoilers I, for I Buffy. Think, okay. <laughs> oh, well, then you know. There's no spoilers. The, the important, yeah. I think the, the thing about season six for, for Buffy was for the most of the run of the season, it did feel much lower power because it was the stupid tri- the trio of, of geeks that was yeah. the bad guys. But ultimately, at the end, it was saving the world. Willow was going to destroy the world. When she raised up that big statue and everything, and Xander saved the world. She, I guess... Willow, Willow was convinced that there was so much yeah. pain in the world because now she felt all, all this horrible pain from losing Tara. Um, yeah, that was a save-the-world scenario. Okay, I mean, but it I didn't guess feel I, that I, way for yeah. 20 episodes. <laughs> it didn't even, to me, it didn't feel like that way was, for the last was, one, in a way. It was pulling the rug out. It was, you know, 
Whedon, yeah. Whedon and company pulled the rug out from under us. It's like, oh, look at it's like goofy geek gay guys, and like all of a sudden, oh, oh, no, this is the real problem. <laughs> you know, we've, yeah, been, we've been slowly watching Willow become well, more and more addicted to magic and blah, 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 blah. Um, the and real that, problem for season six, real problem for season six felt more like life. Life itself well, yeah, that, was that's true. the end. They got back right? to their roots a little bit with that. Yeah, yeah. The first couple seasons was all like every episode was like an, was a, a a metaphor for something about high school, <laughs> and they that started, yeah they started to fall away from that for a little while. Season six was like you know now I'm working, <laughs> I have a job. Yeah. <laughs> and how do I take care of my sister because my mom's dead and blah blah blah. Oh, by the way, everybody, whole bunch of spoilers for Buffy. Sorry about that. I. <laughs> I think, like, fantasy, um, like, the trope is having this universe now in, like, basically, like, everything. There's There are hardly any standalone, like, fantasy novels or anything like that. And that's fine. Everyone, like, cool, you've built a really cool world. Of course, you want to play in it as a creator. Um, but I like some of the, the kind of non-fantasy IPs. Uh, I just read the most recent... Um, uh, book from the Fool series by um, what's his name? Cannot remember it off the top of my head right now. Um, but in that, they're they're taking like Shakespeare, and you're following one character. You're following the Fool as he goes through these different kind of mashed up Shakespeare plays. Um, I think Shakespeare being like one of the the oldest IPs that we have in <laughs> in the English language, um, in the modern English language. Um, a little underutilized. I haven't seen any good Shakespeare games out there. Maybe I've missed something. Someone should tell me. Uh, but I was thinking this morning, like, ooh, that would be really fun to, to do a, a game, Shakespeare game. There's a, there's a game called Hamlet's Hit Points. Hamlet's Hit Points. <laughs> Hamlet's Hit Points. If, if I remember correctly. I, I don't know if there's any, like, fantasy worlds necessarily it's that a, I'm like... A toolkit. Never mind. Like, I like, I like fantasy worlds. I've read used to read a lot of books. It became a little disruptive in my life because I don't stop reading till I finish. Um, right. So, yeah, like, I've enjoyed the Shannara series, but I don't really want to play in those worlds. I think for me, the IPs that I really like are the ones that I want to make an RPG system off of, or I want to make another game to get more of it. And I think right now, like, the two that are on top of my list is Persona, and uh, Avatar, but it looks like uh, some people, some other Back people high. at IGDN get to do Avatar. Hopefully they do it right, <laughs> but I don't know. Uh, we'll see. But Persona 5's like world, I really, I really liked that. Like uh, living in a city, halftime, also then fighting the, fighting like what people's personification of the world, and I thought that could be a really fun. RPG world to live in, and that was something that I was very interested in. And maybe it was just a hit of like nostalgia of, or like, oh man, it feels like. I feel like I'm. I think you might just be. I feel like I'm like experiencing living in Japan or like going through and seeing all these things. Maybe that was it to me because it it did hit those locations very well. Uh, yeah. I think one of the things that really draws people oh, yeah. to certain IPs is that there are established kind of rules for like, if you were a character in this, this is what you would be like. Like that's why yeah. teens are so drawn to things like 
like Harry Potter, for example, you have the houses, you know that if you were a Hogwarts student, you would belong to one of these groups. Like that kind of stuff is is really popular and that gets people wanting to like, oh, I could belong to this faction. I would have a place in this universe. Yeah, I can identify with that. That's, I mean, like to be Avatar, fair. Like Avatar, you're a vendor of some yeah. sort, probably. I'm still here. Uh, yeah. Okay, welcome. Yeah, my, <laughs> my, still my, here. my camera's like switched to a thing and I can't get it back, so. This is how I'm going to end things with this stupid symbol up, and um, it won't be an issue after this episode, so which we'll talk about in a moment. But uh, <laughs> yeah, like uh, that's yeah, cool. Um, yeah, that, I've had that I've had that question asked of me a few times of like you know like if you could work on one IP um, for an RPG, like what would it be? And it's like I literally don't have an, a wish list for that for RPGs. Like there are I, there are, there are IPs that I wish there was more information about, but I'm just not interested personally. In, in designing for those, um, except that you know, I, I I'm kind of lying because I do occasionally rub the serial numbers off of things. Yeah, I wasn't I wasn't <laughs> gonna create, say anything. And create games that are like that, but I don't have to. Yeah, I don't have to. I don't have to be beholding to anybody. That's the whole point that yeah. I'm getting at. Is I I don't have to satisfy the the creator of the IP. I can just like make a thing that kind of feels like that. Um, If, if I had to, just because I, I played a lot of it, especially back in the day, you know, years ago when I first started gaming, I think, you know, it, it'd be fun to contribute to a Star Wars RPG source yeah. book. Just because it has been such a big part of my life, even if, even if I, yeah. like, oh, I gotta, you know, follow the rules, you know, and, and like, make sure that it, you know, passes the test with, with the mouse nowadays, um, with Disney, you know, I'd still be like, That'd be kind of cool to have my name on a Star Wars book. Yeah, it's kind of um, like nerve-wracking to work on an existing IP. I wrote the Tournament of the Golden Arrow for the Hood Swashbuckling Adventures in Sherwood Forest game. Um, and that was a lot of stress because you're writing it not from the perspective of Robin Hood. The players aren't playing that, but there's this story that everyone expects to go a certain way. Uh, it's 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 kind of nerve-wracking and that was just a solitary adventure i feel like you get something like avatar for example and there are all these people who love the love the uh the tv show they've read the comics they've they've done all this stuff and and no matter they what are, you do like, it's gonna, gonna make somebody judge you <laughs> that's gonna yeah i don't think i don't think you could you can't please everybody right um, I would, yeah, yeah. It, 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 I, I, I don't know if I would at this point, unless I had a really solid team. Want I wouldn't want to be the only person working on something like that. Seems like that would be really, really scary. Yeah. Having well, to some, the, That's that's something. That's not something for just like a little one man show, yeah. one person yeah. or even two person show. That's something for, you know, you'd a have company. to bring in, bring in. A, I mean, it would become like. If I were to do something like that for us, for a small IP that was actually affordable and, you know, that I could do, it would become like I would end up end up writing bits, but it would mostly be me managing other people writing it because, it, you know, I wouldn't want to put that kind of responsibility on one person and say, okay, now you write the whole book for this thing. You become steeped in everything about this IP and don't screw it up. <laughs> I think... Spread it out, spread it out. I think one of the the scary things about the specifically Avatar, because that's where I can like 
I can talk to uh, is that it means different things to different people. How viewers can identify with the like non-combat always like the problem solving that happens with the bending in like oh no a town's being attacked by some firebenders that are riding on the lizards I can't remember the names of them <laughs> uh, but also uh, you now have to get the right information from the people there or stop the the dam from flooding like there's that kind of stuff that happens and like I'm really cool doing these bending moves like that that freedom of using the bending creative creatively is uh, is one kind of aspect of avatar that is that is appealing but then there's that other aspect of like uh going to let to legend of korra specifically and they have like their bending with the uh their bending tournament specifically the sport that they play and it's a lot more technical yeah and you've got this like okay you can do this move and this maneuver and this technique and you're learning new things to be like okay water like water whip from the first one that's a that was a maneuver and that feeling more technical and engaging of like a bending battle in a 1v1 duel is another aspect of it and trying to merge those two together to make everybody happy i, I just don't think that that i think those are two separate games yeah and that's the that's the, the big problem the biggest intimidating piece about it to me at least yeah you really do have to kind of like pick out like a we talked about doing existing IPs before, I think, on, on the show, or am I forgetting? Like, as a as a game designer, but like picking out like the the theme of the thing that you're trying to get at and and making it feel a certain way is is very personally interpretive. It I think it's a much better idea to do like something like what you did, Cragger, like what the um the Pride and Prejudice game. I'm so bad. My memory's so bad. Good Society did um, those types of games where you're capturing a feel rather than an actual like, hey, there. This is a world where things have happened. Uh, although the the Song of Ice and Fire uh, game by Green Ronin did pretty well, I feel like, um, kind of capturing the idea that you're playing in a universe and there are rules to the universe and people exist there, but also not necessarily fudging with any of that that was a difficult thing to do i would like to see someone try it with the clover verse i'm gonna put that out there <laughs> manifesting what's the clover verse so it's cloverfield um oh yeah and there's like this whole little universe called the clover verse and um, the different movies that are connected to it and then of course the arg um it's i would i would i would enjoy role-playing in the world of the Cloververse. Maybe at least for one session, because I feel like everyone has to die at the end of a session. Except for maybe oh, one person. Is 10 Cloverfield Lane also part of the same? Okay, because that's is. the only one I've seen. Oh, that's the best one, too, so you're, you're good. Yeah, I, uh, it was very good. There are only three movies. So there's Cloverfield, 10 Cloverfield Lane, and then there's the Cloverfield Paradox, which is the Netflix movie. I'd like to write in the Tommy Westfall universe. Uh, I've heard the name. Are you familiar with the Tommy Westfall theory of the unified TV universe? Tommy Westfall is um, a child character on at, right at the tail end of St. Elsewhere. Oh, the snow globe. The snow globe kid. 
Um, and the, the the theory goes that like when he gla- when he looks into the snow globe and he's um, he sees you know Saint Eligius in the snow globe and they like the the, the hint silly ending whatever interpretation is that everything that happened on Saint Elsewhere took place inside of his imagination like none of those people are real but now if you take Saint Elsewhere there are characters that crossed over to St. Elsewhere from other TV shows, and then those TV shows crossed over with other TV shows, and those TV shows crossed over with other TV shows, and there are, I don't know how many, <laughs> several hundred television shows. Um, as of the writing on this website, 441 television shows oh my that are connected to St. Elsewhere with varying degrees of se- separation throughout the eras of television, all the way back to, like, I Love Lucy to, like, modern-day shows. Wow. Um, huh. <laughs> so can we can we write for that IP where... You know, X-Files lives in the same world as uh, Saint Elsewhere, as Cheers, as Firefly, as Red Dwarf. Can you do like a Carmen, where in the world is Carmen San Diego style? Oh. Where you're like jumping through TV shows to chase somebody and you have to like know in, which TV show you're in? You'd have to like own in the a one lot TV of, Turner. you'd have to license a lot of shows <laughs> to make that game. No, 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 no. You just swap letters and the names of the shows, and then all the names are slightly different. You're fine. Oh sure. Well, you make it a comedy. You make it a comedy game, and it's all satire. Exactly. Then you're fine. Um, I also can't believe I didn't think about this because I did a whole podcast on it last summer. Um, is the Sandlerverse, <laughs> um, and all the Sandler movies. <laughs> I would never. I would never. Oh, no. Well, you can connect many of them. It's very true. You can. Um, but that wasn't the purpose of the podcast itself. Um, we just did one special episode on it with the person who did the original Sandlerverse um, video. Uh, but the, yeah, there are a lot of them, but you it would be very hard to do an RPG about Adam Sandler movies. <laughs> yeah. Here's, like here's, the... a, here's a quick description from this website. If anybody's interested, look up the Tommy Westfall theory. Um, the West, P-H-A-L-L. Um, for example, in St. Elsewhere, um, two of the doctor, two of the do- Donald Westfall and two other doctors visit Cheers, the bar. Um, Cheers gives us Fraser Crane in the show Fraser. John Hemingway of the John Larroquette show once called Fraser's talk show. He was one of the voices on the show. Um, uh, 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 the John Larroquette show once mer- mentioned Yo-Yo Dine, the company from uh, Buckaroo Banzai, which is also a manufacturing client of law firm Wolfram and Hart in the show Angel. Wolfram and Hart had another client, Wayland Utani, which is the aliens company <laughs> that's referred to, um, that also shows up on a weapons display screen in Firefly. That's wild. And a Wayland Utani ship is seen in Red Dwarf, which also depicts the Doctor's TARDIS at one point in the background. So. Arrested development. The, tra- the, the 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 infographic for it, like the the, <laughs> is r- crazy. It's ridiculous. Like you have to follow. Like this show connects to that one, connects to that one, connects to that. Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. So the agents that you are, you have to find the connections to each of the shows so you can navigate <laughs> between them. And like Cheers and Frasier can only be connected by fi- the phone. So you have to get on the phone. You call and you just now you jump. And then, okay, you, you, there's the <laughs> banner from one place. You jump through the banner. Now you're in Firefly. And that's how you get between the worlds. So it's all about a discovery of all of the worlds. So it's best if that's, you don't know anything about the fear theory. Uh, and it's wonderful. the game. 
the game is about the connections of the worlds and the story you go on for each one. You can only maybe do like 10 to 20 adventures because then you've made all the connections, but it's about finding those connections and then you, as a DM, make your own. That would be so fun. <laughs> I want to do that now. Good luck. I have other too many things on my plate. I'm not making it. Okay, so we're going to make the Tommy Westfall. <laughs> That's so fun. Um, <laughs> okay, well, I guess there's one whole IP. There, there is the IP, the, the, the one master, IP. Yeah, everything. <laughs> the one Couldn't IP settle that, on one. We settled on everything. That brings them all and in, in the snow globe binds them. <laughs> oh no! Is um, that one connected? So, I, I think, I think that uh, that's an episode, huh? I think yep. so. <laughs> We're gonna zoom out and we'll all be in a snow globe. Don't worry. Um, that's how this. That's how this one ends. <laughs> Brandon, thank you for. For joining us today. Thanks for having me. And um, a couple of bits of uh, announcement. Um, starting as of the next episode, Jess and I have decided we're going to take this whole thing audio only. The podcast gets quite a bit of play. Uh, the video stuff doesn't get so much play. And it, in going audio only and not having to hold to a Twitch time actually opens up the scheduling uh, for Jess and I. Makes it will make it a little easier to schedule. Um, when guests are available, rather than saying like, okay, this is the time we're only, this is the only time we can do it, um, especially with international trying, guests, and trying to find people, yeah, international guests, it'll help a lot with. Um, so we're doing that. Um, Good Strong Hands is out. Go to nerdburgergames.com. You can get the fancy schmancy hardcover. It's the same cost as the print-on-demand hardcover at drive-through. Um, so go get it there. Uh, Brandon, do you have anything to plug? Yeah, you got anything happening? Uh, I don't. Like I said, I don't have my Kickstarter planned, but if you want to take a look at what I'm working on, c22system.com. That's where uh, the card-based RPG system lives. You can do deck building with a deck of playing cards. There's a, uh, a sci-fi setting I have. I'm looking for playtesters for still called Freelancer's Guide to a Profit Focus Living. And Jess, Moonpunk. Yeah, I mean that's really the only thing I've, I've had um, since <laughs> coming out. Although I'm working on another I'm, game too. I'm, say, I'm sure there's something coming yet. Yeah, there's there's something coming down the pipeline. But you can you can find my stuff at wannabegames.com. Sometimes I plug my Twitter, but I'm not going to do that today. I'll spare you. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, everybody, um, and we will see you in the podcast. <laughs> or hear you you'll hear us we'll nobody, hear you nobody too. will be seeing anybody spooky in the podcast I'll see everything <laughs> very spooky